Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, and no one, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away and have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there, but there they are, overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor. But the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Well, hello again. My name is Rick. For those I haven't met before, it's good to see those who are around with many of us gallivanting around on holidays, which I'll be doing later this week. Um, each... Uh, each night at the end of dinner, my family uh, reads the Bible together. At the moment, we're reading the Action Bible. And by coincidence, we're actually up to exactly this spot that we just read in the, in the non-sermon Bible reading in Acts with Eutychus falling out the window. Um, and one of my kids was incredulous that he would, would have fallen asleep while listening to Paul speak. And uh, yeah, thankfully, it's not quite as high a, a fall out of uh, this building, but I'll try not to put you to sleep <laughs> this morning. Uh, so that's our non-sermon reading that we're going to come back to. We're not preaching on that now. We'll come back to that later in the year. But we are looking at Psalm 14. And if you were here last week, you might remember that we talked about the fact that some of the things that we read in the Bible are great against what the culture around us says. Um, and yet we were encouraged to, to, to recognise that all of God's words for us are good. And uh, I think that's going to be true of what we read together this morning. And so I'm going to pray that God will help us to trust the goodness of what he has to say before we uh, look at Psalm 14 again. So please get your Bibles open at Psalm 14. Heavenly Father, um, we do uh, want to trust that your words to us are good and good for us, um, particularly when they do great against what we hear from the culture around us. And so we ask that you'll help us to... Um, to hear these words with the conviction that they are your good words to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would the world be a better place if no one believed in God? Would the world be a better place if that was the case? That's what some of the popular atheists of today are trying to convince the world of, and they're making a pretty tidy fortune selling books that say exactly that, that the world would be a better place if people didn't believe in God. And it's not just in books, it's in our popular culture and in songs as well. Back in 1971, the Beatle, John Lennon, uh, wrote and released a song called Imagine. We know that song, right? That song is an atheist anthem, or an anthem for an atheist utopia, an atheist paradise. Think about the words. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. You may say that I'm a dreamer, 
but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. You can hear it in your, you can sing along with it in your mind, can't you? You know, you know the words, you know the lyrics. It's a catchy song and it's an appealing idea. A world at peace, living as one, and all that we need is to remove God from the equation and we will get there. No hell, no heaven, just earth and sky. That's what John Lennon says. Is he right? Well, Psalm 14 says no. In fact, it says that denying God is the root of human corruption. And so we get to our first point in verse 1, where we discover the foolishness of the functional atheist. Have a look at verse 1 with me. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Some of those atheists that I just mentioned are trying to convince us that anyone who believes in God is the fool. That belief in God is just a crutch for the mentally weak or the intellectually dishonest, unwilling or unable to think for themselves. One such atheist began his speech saying, I'm an atheist, therefore I think. Another one was giving a speech at the Opera House and he, and he asked if there were any Christians in the audience and when they put up their hands, he said, I'll speak slowly for you. If you believe in God, you must be dim-witted. These so-called new atheists claim that any rational thinking person will, of course, recognise that belief in God is a foolish, old-fashioned superstition destined for extinction, just like all the naive ideas of our primitive ancestors. But there's nothing new about denying God. 3,000 years ago when this psalm was written, just as today, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But this is not talking about, unlike the claims of, of some of those new atheists, this is not talking about the intellectual capacity of people who deny God or that the claim there is no God is just somehow plain stupid. The Bible's definition of the fool is not about intellectual deficiency, it's about moral deficiency, as you can see from the second half of that verse. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. See, the fool, according to the Bible, is the person who lives as if there is no God. And so they are morally corrupt. And notice, too, that it doesn't say the fool says in his mind there is no God, or even with his mouth there is no God. It says, the fool says, in his heart, there is no God. The heart is the centre of the whole person, the emotions, the intentions, the will, the direction of life. Yeah, there are many people who will never say with their mouth, there is no God, or, or even in their minds. Far more serious, and the real issue, is the person who denies God in their heart. That's the person who God calls a fool. Whatever I claim with my mouth and with my mind, I live as if there is no God. It's the functional atheist. The fool is someone whose life is not controlled and guided and directed by my acknowledgement that there is a God who is my creator and judge. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
This is telling us the other side of the coin, that the denial of God is the beginning of folly. That when you take God out of the equation, you are unpicking the very fabric of how to live in this world. Far from John Lennon's utopia, a perfect atheist paradise, denial of God and moral corruption go hand in hand. You know, Rolling Stone magazine ranked that song by John Lennon, ranked Imagine, number three in the top-ranked songs of all times. But also in the top ten was another Beatles song written by his fellow Beatle Paul McCartney. It's the song Hey Jude. You know the song Hey Jude? Paul McCartney wrote that song to comfort John Lennon's five-year-old son who was devastated because John Lennon had an affair and walked out on his wife and his son Julian. That's the godless utopia that John Lennon was living for. He did what he wanted, denying God and regardless of those he hurt. And this is not saying that atheists are always more immoral and corrupt than your average person. That's often not the case. But it is true that once you take God out of the equation, you have no rational reason to be good or kind. If I'm just a pile of atoms and so are you, then you're no more valuable than the rock that I stepped on outside on my way in here. And what I do to you has no more lasting significance or consequences than what I do to that rock. And you can't hold me to account for it. No one can. But, you know, most people recognise that that is not the way that life works. Most people recognise that that is not what living in this world is actually like. It has no connection with reality. And so most atheists don't actually live consistently with what they believe. That's the irrationality of atheism. But that is the natural consequence of denying God. It's a life that has no moral anchor points because there is no such thing as should or shouldn't. There is no such thing as good and bad. There is just what is. And in that world, the strongest wins or the person with the loudest voice wins. But as I said, this is not talking about theoretical atheism, the people that write books about it, which is actually quite rare. It's talking about functional atheism, the person who lives as if there is no God, which is far more common. And so our next point from verses 2 and 3 tells us that this human corruption is universal. There is no one who does good. Let me read from the end of verse 1 and into verse 2. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have sinned, sorry, all have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. The Apostle Paul quotes those exact verses in Romans 3, but he quotes them to stop the religious person from standing on our moral high horse and looking down on others. It says there is no one who does good. All have turned away. That the inclination of our hearts to deny God is universal. And as I said, that's meant to give us humility, to recognise that all of us on our own are as far from God as the person who openly denies God and deliberately lives as if he isn't there. 
It's only when I acknowledge God's assessment of the corruption of all mankind that that includes me, only then will I recognise that I need something that doesn't come from within me to restore me to God. I need to be washed clean and declared righteous by the blood of Jesus, not by my own self-righteous morality, because that will never do it. But as I suspect you know, that teaching about the corruption of humanity, the sinfulness of humanity, is pretty unpopular in our culture these days. It's one of the most strongly opposed ideas of the Christian message, in, in, in my observation. I mean, you go to a dinner party and try and raise that as a topic of conversation and see how quickly that kills the conversation. As a culture, we have almost completely rejected this idea. We don't want to hear that we are corrupt and deserving of judgment. Now, this assessment of humanity only gives part of the picture of what the Bible says about humans. Back a couple of pages in Psalm 8, it talks about the fundamental dignity and value of humanity because we are made in God's image. But if you take that out of the picture, like the person who denies God does, then you no longer have human dignity and value. And so we need to find it somewhere else. And the place where we look for it mostly is in our goodness. We must be good. That's where my value comes from. And so we end up with this fragile view of ourselves that cannot handle any suggestion that maybe I'm not good. And so we find ways to excuse those things about me that might be evidence that that I'm not good. And so instead of the problem being me or in me, it's something that happened to me. We put the blame somewhere else. It's culture that influences me badly or it's an illness or it's something bad that happened to me in the past. So, for example, my bad temper, my anger, that's not my fault I lash out at others because I was treated badly in the past or it's mental health related. And so I can excuse that behaviour because that's not who I really am. And so we have this fragile idea of our goodness. I cannot dare to challenge that idea. But the Bible is perfectly comfortable to acknowledge our sinfulness because it holds our sinfulness and our dignity as made in the image of God together. So God can condemn a person as corrupt and sinful and at the same time uphold the value and dignity of that person. In fact, that sits right at the very heart of the gospel message, that God sees humanity in all our sin and calls it that and calls us worthy of his judgment And at the same time, he so loves us and he values us that he didn't want to leave us there. He wanted to do something about it. That's the gospel message. That's why he sent Jesus. So as Christians, we have this unique ability to acknowledge our own corruption, to see ourselves in this description that all have turned away, but to turn back, to turn away from that corruption, to not be the fool who denies God and continues down that path. And so while this psalm seems to have two categories of people, the fool who denies God and God's people, it's actually inviting each one of us to make that journey from the one to the other. 
That's our second point, our universal human corruption. <coughs> From verse 4 to 6, what we then see is the clash of realities between these two, the reality for the evildoer who denies God and for God's people. And the challenge that that clash of realities presents to both of us. And it begins in verse 4 with what the godless do not know. Have a look at the beginning of verse 4. Do these evildoers know nothing? There is an ignorance in the person who denies God. There is something that they do not know. And as we read on in those verses, they go on to say that the evildoer who denies God oppresses God's people and their ignorance is thinking they can get away with that or not knowing that they can't get away with it because the God they deny is there and God is on the side of his people. Have a look as I read from verses uh, 4 to 6, the two clashing realities that come up in these verses. Let me read from verse 4. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. See, the person who thinks they can act without consequences in oppressing others, and particularly against God's people, they they think they can get away with it. And the great atheistic regimes of the world do exactly that. Stalin in Russia, Mao in China, tried to wipe out any acknowledgement of God and particularly of Christianity. And the more our culture moves away from our Christian heritage, the more it tries to push Christianity out altogether. The secular worldview has no space to live peacefully alongside believers. There is an increasing intolerance for any talk of God in our culture, and particularly for the unique claims of Jesus, the exclusive claims of Jesus. And Christians will increasingly face that, and we are. But all these attempts to oppose God face one significant challenge. The God they deny is there. There is a God. But because they deny the God who is there, they don't realise that they cannot win. They cannot succeed. That's what they don't know. That's their ignorance in verse 4. And so we see in, in, um, in China, Mao's attempt to wipe out Christianity has gone the exact other way and there are more Christians there in China than there ever was before. But there is still this tension in these verses. These evildoers do devour God's people as though eating bread. They do frustrate the plans of the poor. When people live as if God doesn't exist and I can do whatever I want, the people who suffer are the poor, the weak, and the people who do fear God and want to do what's right. That's a sad reality of life. And yet they will never succeed because, verse 5, God is present in the company of the righteous. Verse 6, the Lord is their refuge. And this clash of realities, as I said, is a challenge to both sides. The challenge to those who deny God is to recognise the reality that they deny, that as much as they might want to take any talk of God out of the culture and get rid of it, 
get rid of his claim over our lives, out of the world, they will never succeed because the God they deny is there. But there is a challenge for God's people too because it will often seem like those who deny God have the better of it. They often seem to succeed in their efforts to devour God's people. We see that again and again. And so the challenge for us in the face of that is will you continue to trust that God is present in the company of the righteous, that God is our refuge? That's the challenge. So what's the solution? This is our final point. The solution is there in verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. The solution is God restoring his people. This is not talking about being restored to political influence as some people aim for, for the church. God's people are not a political entity like they were in the Old Testament. I mean, there is some place for working politically and there is a, currently a bill that's about to go before Parliament next month, a religious discrimination bill that is aimed to try and make sure that people of faith, as we are called, are not discriminated against because of our faith, that we have the freedom to express our faith. And there is a place to exercise our democratic rights in that regard and so pray that that bill succeeds. But that's not the answer. That's not what being restored by the Lord means. And there's certainly no guarantee that the bill will pass. The answer, I think, is twofold. Uh, the first is that restoring God's people needs to begin in our hearts, just like it does for the person who denies God. That is, we need to live with the same conviction as the fool in verse 1, but the reverse. We need to live with the conviction that there is a God and the wisdom that comes from knowing God, the conviction that Jesus is Lord and wanting to live that reality and speak that reality. That's what will make the difference. That's what will make God's people a light on the hill where people will see the goodness of actually acknowledging God and living for God and they will recognise that. That's what will push back against the corruption that is inevitable when people deny God. That's always been the way. When God's people live the conviction as God's people and the goodness of living God's way, the goodness of that spreads. Restoring God's people begins in our own hearts. And finally, the second part of the answer, I think, is beyond this life. That is, that clash of realities that we see in verses 4 to 6, where those who deny God oppose God's people and often seem to win. And so acknowledging God means trusting that, the unbelie that what the unbelievers do not know is real, that God will restore his people completely and finally. There is a freedom to knowing that. And that helps with living that conflict now, that whatever opposition we face, it cannot succeed in the end. And so we pray those words of verse 7. They become our prayer. Although we pray them, I guess, with the words that Jesus taught us to pray, 
we pray, your kingdom come. That will be the time when God fully and finally restores his people and where the reality of God and the goodness of living God's way will be absolutely undeniable. And so we pray that. And while we pray that, we know and trust that God will bring that about. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we do live in a world where people deny God and perhaps we are tempted in our own minds or our own hearts to live as if you are not there as well. And so, Father, we ask that you will strengthen our conviction of your, re- your reality and your goodness and the goodness of living your way. And we pray that that will become increasingly a reality and clear for people around us. Father, may we be advocates, may we be lights on the hill for those around us, even for those who deny you. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.